This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on Beergate as Keir Starmer attempts to outmaneuver the Daily Mail. Writer Olivia Lang meets Britpop legend Jarvis Cocker, whose lockdown clear out of ephemera unlocked his long awaited memoir. Comedian Sophie Hagen on the hard slog involved in becoming an influencer. And finally, as the Cannes Film Festival celebrates its 75th birthday, Zan Brooks asks if it really is a university of geopolitics or much more about stage-managed frivolities. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in... A quick warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, after their special operation on Beergate, Marina Hyde looks at how the Daily Mail deployed its big guns against Keir Starmer. Did the Labour leader's press conference inadvertently channel the unfaithful golfer Tiger Woods in 2010, or was it closer to the South Park movie? Read by Erin Shanahan. On Monday night, Keir Starmer performed as The Gambler in a tiny space with cheap scenery and three journalists. The Labour leader's promise to resign if Durham Police issue him with a fixed penalty notice looked like an off, off, off Broadway production that can only run to four actors who play all the parts. No spoilers, but some of the above will return in later scenes as the executioners. As such, it certainly marks a new entry into the annals of hilariously mad-looking press conferences. For me, the only thing missing was Tiger Woods' mum sitting purse-lipped in the front row, like she was in 2010, when Tiger apologised to the world for his cocktail waitress habit. Integrity was the big buzzword on that occasion, as it was with Starmer on Monday night, with Woods promising to start living a life of integrity didn't win a major again for nine years. So, read into that what you will. 
Starmer's soliloquy certainly wasn't good enough for the Daily Mail, which on Tuesday wet its collective pants that the Labour leader has had the temerity to answer the one question the Mail would have screamed at him for months if he hadn't. As their depend-wearing splash headline has it, Starmer accused of piling pressure on police. I like the idea that you can pressurise the police. Can someone let me know how to do this? Because I'm yet to receive so much as a callback over a burglary that took place over the Easter weekend. Happy to do an Amdram Tiger, if necessary. The main thing to understand is that after months of their unilateral special operation on Beergate, this is the Mail's victory parade. Tuesday's multi-article offering is the heavy artillery being wheeled through Fleet Street's Red Square. There's the classic late 1980s Stephen Glover missile. A couple of near misses on the job, but still claimed to be serviceable. Later years' weaponry tells its own sadly diminished story, of course. The supposedly state-of-the-art wooden drone is actually just a Canon DSLR taped inside some bulky casing. But the big question on some lips is, have the game theorists at the mail made a strategic miscalculation? effectively steering Tory MPs up the escalation ladder towards moving against their boy Johnson. For those of us who feel like this entire mushrooming shit show is like watching the Cuban Missile Crisis reenacted by the cast of Made in Chelsea, the signs are promising slash infuriating, delete according to taste. Miscalculation certainly seems to be the judgement of Islington-based newsletter writer Dominic Cummings, who fired off another of his occasionally coherent tweets yesterday afternoon in which he electronically cackled at the sight of supposed client journalists messing up their forward induction and ending up accidentally working for the other side, which is to say, for him. As Dominic had it, everyone in Westminster is working on the vote-leave operation to remove Boris Johnson. Maybe. Either way, one of my very favourite things in politics is Cummings acting like vote-leave is still a massive thing. He reminds me of Gary King, the Simon Pegg character in The World's End, insisting to his deeply unwilling ex-friends that they get back together to recreate their epic pub crawl from 23 years earlier. Fucking hell, Kano. What do you mean you don't drink anymore? That's like a lion eating hummus. In fact, now that Benedict Cumberbatch has had his fun... I'd truly love to see what Peg would do with the role of Dominic Cummings. You just know it would be incredibly funny, but also elegiac and quietly heartbreaking. As for Starmer, the film that came to mind while watching his press conference was the South Park movie. When Kia was going, it's about me, it's about what I believe in politics, it's a matter of integrity... I was reminded of the Canadian guy shouting, this is not a boat diplomacy, this is a boat dignity, this is a boat respect, and all the Americans falling about laughing. I mean, the Canadian guy is actually in the right. But, yeah, a hard watch. I'm actually trying to think of how any of this at all could now be more excruciating. At least no one has yet suggested David Miliband standing in Wakefield. Against the backdrop of the actually excruciating cost of living crisis, however, the current spectacle is looking increasingly surreal, and dare I say it, increasingly like an all-male production. 
Even Angela Rayner's promise to also resign if she was given an FPN happened off stage, like the death of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from the snapper of the Beargate photograph. James Dellingpole's boy, as it turns out, to the male thrusters, to Cummins, to the weird machismo of Johnson's reported description of Starmer as out of tune with the raw instincts of Brits. I can't help noticing of late that women's characters have sort of melted away slash backed away from this increasingly histrionic story. Why is that? Just some mad statistical fluke, I guess. Even so, I can't help feeling that ladies across the nation are otherwise engaged. Perhaps answering work emails at midnight while putting on a dark wash, sourcing a schoolchild's platinum jubilee costume and wondering how on earth they're going to bridge the gap between last May's energy bills and this May's. Thank heavens for the less emotional sex, then, who are out there in Red Square living their victorious lives for the rest of us. That was Who's Winning the Beer Gate Battle? In this excruciating instalment, It's Hard to Tell, by Marina Hyde, read by Erin Shanahan. Next, the writer Olivia Lang recently met Jarvis Cocker to talk about his new memoir, which emerged from the personal objects he found during a lockdown loft clearout. Here, they discussed the redemptive role pop music had during his childhood and how his songs exploring male sexuality describe a more innocent time. Read by Jason Doan. Jarvis Cocker is late. The dog walker didn't turn up on time, and he arrives at the London Library looking worried, even though he already rang to apologise. I'm flustered, he announces, pulling off his beanie and unwinding an elegant scarf. He's dressed in a pleasingly autumnal palette of oranges and browns. Still skinny as a rake, salt and pepper hair uncombed, his bag full of books, the epitome of the rumpled dandy about town. We're here to talk about his memoir, Good Pop, Bad Pop, but don't expect tales of Britpop debauchery. It's an account of his upbringing in Sheffield, his protracted, passionate apprenticeship in the foothills of pop, and it ends in 1985, years before pulp exploded into mainstream visibility. He chose the library because the book hinges around his own collection, which is substantial, though far stranger than these venerable rooms of leather-bound volumes. The Jarvis Cocker archive, as I'm sure he wouldn't call it, being temperamentally averse to pomposity, has spent the past two decades in a moth-infested London attic, a low, narrow storage space he compares to a Toblerone. It's been bothering him for a long time, the knowledge that so many pieces of his past were crammed into a room you couldn't even stand up inside. What was up there? Precious relics or a load of unwanted, mysteriously undiscardable crap? It's like that phrase, brushing things under the carpet, isn't it? I love doing that. But it did prey on my mind, realising I was in some way not dealing with things. During lockdown, he began the gargantuan task of dragging it out into the light. He'd been planning on writing a memoir anyway, and the ensuing game of keep or cob, cob being Sheffield slang for chuck, as in I cobbed him, suggested a structure. The thing that makes it a bit more interesting, he says, 
is that because it's based on real tangible objects, sometimes it triggered memories that wouldn't have voluntarily come up. It wasn't just the party line I was giving. It turned out he'd been building a time capsule all along. Even the most seemingly worthless objects. A used bar of imperial leather soap, a plaster cast of his wonky teeth, a polyester shirt, a green plastic apple, released a rush of memories, undisturbed since the day they were interred. Objects are funny like that. History resides inside them, indiscernible to a casual eye. The pearl of these excavations was a small beige exercise book with his mother's name written on the cover. It contained the pulp master plan, written by a 15-year-old cocker before he'd so much as figured out how to play a chord on a guitar, let alone appointed bandmates or written any songs. It includes a detailed breakdown of the pulp wardrobe. Garish t-shirts, drainpipe trousers and rancid ties. Plus the chords to Annie's song by John Denver. Credibility blown. Best of all, there's a cartoon of a cleaver labelled Pulp Ink, poised to sever a fist marked Major Record Label, which is gripping a squashed-looking, repressed artist. This is quite an unusual vision of creative success for a teenage boy, I suggest. I wasn't just saying I wanted a yacht and loads of money. I was saying, yeah, we're going to change the structure of society. He laughs ruefully. Nice idea. He'd always aimed high. As a child, his career goal was astronaut, superseded post-puberty by pop star. For a shy, lanky kid with glasses and bad teeth, forming a band was a way of being in a gang. And I really wanted to have friends. Starting Pulp was a way, too, of alchemically transforming everyday existence into a more fantastic version. Several times in our conversation, he touches on his persistent desire to live inside the TV. A zone of adventure populated by dinosaurs, Daleks and the monkeys. I realise that image doesn't work so much now, because TVs are just flat screens. But when they were boxes, you kind of thought... What's in it? You could almost imagine fitting inside it. It was punk that offered a way in. Suddenly, you didn't need to master complicated chord structures. Suddenly, being weird was a potential source of power. Elvis Costello legitimised NHS specs, while the fall and the slits could barely play their instruments. The young Jarvis would lie in bed listening to John Peel under the covers poised to capture any song that gave him what he still calls the tingle on his radio cassette recorder. There's something deeply endearing about these early exploits, a lost world of fanzines and fly-posting. Pulp's first gig was in the school assembly hall during lunch break. Ticket price, 20p. They wore matching outfits made by Cocker's sister out of psychedelic material discovered in the school's stock cupboard. The show opened with a distinctly underwhelming light show by their chemistry teacher, which might have been more dramatic if they'd have thought to close the curtains. Undeterred by this exercise in humiliation, they carried on performing around the city.
slowly working out how to produce a listenable song and play it live too. Ideally, without the singer's glasses flying into the drum kit as he flailed joyfully on stage. This isn't the first time I've met Jarvis Cocker. The first time was on the 5th of March 1993, when Pulp played Portsmouth South Parade Pier with St Etienne. I was 15 and had snuck out with a friend who was forbidden to go. We met the band outside, admired Jarvis's kipper tie, and were settling in for a night of dancing when the lights went up and a voice announced that two underaged girls were in the building. We laughed at those losers, before looking up and seeing my friend's incandescent father. It was among the most mortifying experiences of my life. In retrospect, there's something more than a little pulpish about this scenario. Embarrassment is always rubbing and groaning up against glamour in their songs, threatening to topple it entirely. Cocker's lyrics are strewn with bus depots, gasometers and corner shops. The pathetic staging posts in an electric landscape of sexual fantasy and failure. He imbued the Sheffield suburbs of Catcliffe, Ecclesall and the Wicker with the same seedy glamour as Serge Gansborg's Montmartre or Lou Reed's East Village. The realisation that it was possible, even desirable, to write about real mundane events and places didn't come until his early twenties. The rest of Pulp went off to university, but he didn't want to relinquish the pop dream and so was living on the dole, attending Disco University two nights a week at a club called The Limit, instead of taking up a place at Liverpool to study English. He might have drifted on like this forever, were it not for accidentally tumbling from the window of a girl he was trying to impress. He fell two storeys, smashed multiple bones and spent months recuperating in hospital. It knocked everything into a different perspective, he thinks now. Lying in his hospital bed, he saw that real things were the only interesting thing. It took a violent fall to earth to make me realise that. There's something about this revelation that recalls Andy Warhol, another prodigious hoarder who likewise made an instantly recognisable look out of features others might have attempted to conceal. In fact, now that I look at him properly, Cocker is dressed in the ect Warhol uniform of blue jeans, plaid shirt, specs and a preppy jacket. Both grew up as outsiders in mining towns, before escaping by way of art school. Like Cocker, Warhol was entranced by popular culture, in love with the democratic appeal of ordinary proletarian objects. He even wanted to call pop art common art, you can imagine him tapping a sly toe to common people as plutocrats squabbled over his screen-printed soup cans. Cocker first encountered Warhol via a Velvet Underground compilation he bought as a teenager in HMV. Intrigued, he got Popism, Warhol's deadpan memoir of the 1960s, out of a Sheffield library. As he says in Good Pop, Bad Pop, the pulp idea... The concept that you could find artistic depth and sustenance in the things other people throw away 
wouldn't have been possible without my exposure to this record and ideas from the scene that gave birth to it. Pop was empowerment. It was accessible to everyone. The problem with pop is that it necessitates being popular. Warhol was fascinated by fame, especially the eerie way it converts a person into a spectacle. You'd hope that someone who spent over a decade trying to become a pop star would like it when they did finally succeed. This is where Cocker's memoir becomes a little melancholy. It leaves him at 22, still doggedly pursuing his outsized dream. But by the late 1990s, he'd been catapulted to the heart of fame. The chase down the street by paparazzi can't go to the shop for a pint of milk version. In a recent interview, his girlfriend at the time, the actor Chloe Sevigny, said she designed her entire subsequent career out of a conscious desire to avoid that sort of frightening, annihilating fame. How did he navigate it? The forcible switch from observer to observed. I don't know if I did navigate it. Fame in our times has taken the place of heaven in past belief systems. You think that your life's a bit drab or it's not really working, but if you're famous, you'd be at the front of the queue. You'd be at the best table. All this kind of paradise. So to experience this thing that's got this weird belief system around it, and also this belief system you've constructed yourself, it's never going to be what you thought. I didn't end up in the telly, he pauses to consider. To turn your nose up at it doesn't seem right, because you do want people to engage with what you're doing. But it's the other bits. It's the being observed part that wasn't so good. I prefer to be furtive. The conversation moves on. But later he circles back to it by way of a brilliant rant about the X Factor. He never liked the idea of the mentors. What was exciting about the show, he thought, was the kids themselves their energy and ferocious desire. It just makes it so dull if there's some grown-up in charge who's going to tell you how to do it. The exciting thing is that anyone can do it. Most music came from really abject origins. It doesn't come from comfortable surroundings. So it's not like, let's make it accessible so some lower-class people can join in. That's where the power of it is coming from. The thing that makes it exciting, that takes you away is that it's come from frustration and somebody wants to blast through it into somewhere else. And sometimes they do. Furtive is a great word, even better when said in Cocker's distinctive, lugubrious tones. Furtive. There is a furtive quality to old pulp songs, something damp and libidinous, but also vulnerable and awkward and comical. They're about fancying people who don't fancy you or getting off with the wrong girl while eyeing up the right one. Their erotic frequency ranges from the breathless adolescent voyeurism of babies. I hid inside her wardrobe and she came home round four and she was with some kid called David from the garage up the road. To the bleak incantatory rites of This Is Hardcore a song that for all its peeping Tom posturing 
is really about getting fucked by fame. It struck me, listening to these songs again in the harsher lights of the present decade, that sexual expression has changed drastically in the intervening years. Nobody could call them innocent. I tried wholesome and saw Cocker visibly recoil. And yet they are artefacts from a more innocent moment, before the weaponization of adolescent male sexuality by way of the incel movement, which has seen sexual incompetence or failure become yoked to extreme misogyny and entitlement. Cocker is only vaguely familiar with this concept and openly appalled by it. He thinks the representation of sex has undergone a troubling shift since his own teenage years. Sex has disappeared from the mainstream. There was nudity on the telly when I was younger, and I was grateful for that. You would get quite good films like an Antonioni film, which had sex but was also about human relationships. The message was sex is part of life. Whereas now, if you want sex, you have to go to a porn site and it's going to be horrible and it's not part of life. So it's like sex exists in some weird place that is separate to life, which isn't true. In the book, he describes trying to provide some kind of sex education for his own adolescent son to the mortification of both parties. It worries him the fact that sex and life have become so severed. Because what you're dealing with is you get those feelings, those instincts at a certain age, and they're strong feelings, and you've got to deal with them in some way, and if there are no clues except some kind of foul thing online where you start to think of people as objects, and why aren't I getting my sex that I was promised, or whatever, I I don't know what those people think. Yes, I say, they talk about the right to sex. No, that's a horrible thing. But for me, that couldn't happen because of being brought up in a very feminine environment. So when I started to feel urges, because I'd been brought up in a very female-dominated environment, there was no way I was going to start thinking of women as objects. There's a photo of the young Jarvis at the age of seven, in tiny blue shorts and flip-flops, completely surrounded by women of all ages. Sister, cousin, mum, gran, aunts. His dad had just left, abandoning the family and moving to Australia, literally as far away as you could get. Lots of people hoard and make art to fill some kind of nagging gap, and Cocker is certainly aware of the hole left by his father. He grappled with it too in 1998's A Little Soul. In retrospect, one of the most beautiful songs, and especially videos, Pulp ever made, about a father with nothing to give to his son. I didn't realise when I first called it good pop, bad pop, that could be about my dad as well. The only interesting thing about my dad is that he just wasn't there. I think when that happened... Not trying to be Mr Cod's psychologist or whatever, but I think you do look for something to fulfil that role. It was Pop, good Pop, that took care of him, providing nurture and nourishment, reassurance and excitement. He feels now that he was born at a lucky moment, 
when you could get stuff that would fulfil that role from pop sources. Lucky. He uses the word five times over two hours. Not everyone would think of Sheffield during Thatcherism as a lucky place to live, but he describes it as a kind of seething cornucopia for a culture-hungry working-class kid. Take jumble sales or nightclubs or university grants or even the dole. There were so many things to do, so many cheap ways to educate yourself or create something strange and new. Does he worry about kids now? about the kind of creative education they might have. So many of the resources he relied on have been lost. He agrees. But he also thinks, without wanting to sound like a New Age guru about it, that creativity is something everybody possesses. Over the past decade or so, he's been going round the country giving a PowerPoint presentation on creativity in school assemblies and festivals and village halls. The message is that anyone can do it, if they only pay attention to what they're already dreaming about. I'm not a pessimist. I think people do find a way to do their own thing. So there's bad pop and good pop, hunger of all kinds and art as a consistent source of nourishment and pleasure. Several times he mentions that he's trying to get better at relationships, rather than zoning out in front of the TV and putting all his feelings into a song instead. Clearing out the attic is part of a concerted effort to get to grips with old stuff, on an emotional as well as physical level. To change bad habits, to communicate more instead of escaping into fantasy. Me ringing you this morning about the dog situation, that was a slight breakthrough, he announces, surprisingly. Because a few years ago, I would have just worried about it. The journey would have been an absolute nightmare. So then, ringing, even though I wasn't pleased about being late, at least I knew I'd dealt with it. I can't imagine many pop stars saying that. Anyway, he's not planning on changing too much. Obviously, not being a good communicator in personal relationships is bad and can lead to some tricky situations and moral conundrums. But also there's something really beautiful about using your life as raw material and making it into something that, if you do it right, it's like a thing that's there forever and people can access it and it will do something for them. It's such a democratic vision, good pop. Anyone can participate, anyone can play. It's not about fame or money, it's about making something worth sharing. And God knows Jarvis has done that. After we finish, he whisks us into the darkened stacks to view the hundreds and thousands of things that people have made over the centuries. And then he pops to Pret for a quick sandwich. The man who fell to earth. Just as ordinary as you like. That was Most Music Comes From Really Abject Origins by Olivia Lang Read by Jason Doan We'll be back after this short break I'm Grace Dent and I am back 
for third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and Self-Esteem as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. (laughs) Northern women eating carbohydrates. (laughs) Comfort Eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday. And you can see Grace doing Comfort Eating Live for the first time on Wednesday, 25th of May at the podcast show in Islington, London. Her special guest is entrepreneur, podcaster and TV personality Jamie Lang, best known for his time as a regular on Made in Chelsea. That's Comfort Eating Live with Jamie Lang on the 25th of May. Book your tickets now at gigsandtours.com. Comfort Eating with Grace Lent is supported by Ocado. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, the comedian and author Sophie Hagen has been putting in the hard hours becoming a social media influencer so that you don't have to. Here, she tells us all about the perks how to do sponsored content with integrity, and why this is by no means an easy side hustle. Read by Erin Shanahan. For the past two years, I've been trying really hard to become an influencer. I just wanted to influence people to live their best lives, to find their inner strength, and, okay, I wanted free stuff. If you can't beat it, join it. Capitalism, that is. Since I have 100,000 followers on Instagram who listen to what I say, to whom I often recommend my favourite products and services, why not double check if the brands want to pay me to do so? I would rather they pay me than someone else who isn't me. What I am saying is, I wanted to do the very easy job of hashtag influencing and get lots of money for it. I assume since you are reading The Guardian, you are frowning disapprovingly while sucking on an avocado because hashtag influencing is vapid and superficial. But are you really telling me that if someone offered you £1,000 to take a photo of the aforementioned avocado and post it to Instagram using the hashtag avocados rule and tagging at avocado in the post, you wouldn't be tempted? I made an oath. I would never lie. I would never recommend anything that I didn't use or want to use myself. And I wouldn't stop being myself on social media. I would keep posting about social issues. If brands didn't like that, I wouldn't work with them. It was time to take my followers and turn them into cash money. 
I started with a few hashtag gifted skincare products and a gold card to my favourite all-you-can-eat Sunday roast buffet restaurant. Someone offered me £800 to post a photo of myself in a neon green thong. But I'm not sure if that was a brand deal or if that was just a man. Then an influencing agency signed me as an actual hashtag influencer. I was so excited. I laughed when my new agents told me that they would, of course, give me some training. Until I realised they weren't joking. I was taken through the seven apps I needed in order to be a content creator. It turns out that the average photo needs to go through at least three photo editing apps before it's worth posting. And I was taught about hashtags and algorithms. Posting in the morning or evening is best. That is when people are on their way to work or relaxing at home. Don't post at weekends. People aren't on their phones. You can hide your hashtags in the comments section and they still work. Differentiate between photos of your face, your body, food, beauty and nature. Stick to one colour scheme across your grid. Once you have posted, spend half an hour commenting on people's comments. Instagram rewards engagement by showing your post to more people. And so on. Then... My home was dissected. My dinner plates were all shiny. They should be matte. My tabletops were shiny too. I would need to get special photoshoot backgrounds that looked like fancy marble counters on which to pose my food. Now I constantly notice how shiny everything is. My cutlery, my picture frames, my forehead. It's all very not hashtag Instagrammable. I've gained so much respect for influencers. You have to get up early because morning light is the best. You have to have a tidy and matte house. Your food always gets cold because it takes forever to curate a photo of it. You have to understand complex and ever-changing social media algorithms. You have to plan ahead and think strategically. It's a full-time job not an easy side hustle. I find myself desperately clinging to my job as a comedian and trying to merge the two to be funny in my hashtag sponcon, sponsored content, so that no one notices the mess in the background or the fact that it's dark outside because I slept until 4pm. Of course, beauty standards suck. Materialism is the worst and perfect social media posts make people feel super insecure about themselves. But it's hard for me to blame the women who have found a way to get rich by taking advantage of a beauty and perfection obsessed, toxic and capitalist system. Because it's way harder than it looks. Unfortunately. That was I've Decided to Become an Influencer. How Hard Can It Be? By Sophie Hagen. Read by Erin Shanahan. Finally, as the Cannes Film Festival turns 75... Writer Zan Brooks explores the event's history as provocateur, crystal ball, or as a cultural lighthouse in the storm. It's a place of contradictions and friction, but its love of dissidence and goading seem particularly pertinent this year. Read by Jason Doan. The Truman Show is a 1990s Hollywood movie about a man who lives in a bubble, cut off from the world. As played by Jim Carrey, Truman Burbank, surrounded by actors, his every move dogged by cameras, stares at a stage set and believes that it's real. In the film's final scene, he climbs the stairs, finds a door and prepares to escape his gilded cage. That keynote image 
Truman's Ascent Against a Painted Sky, is now the official poster for the forthcoming Cannes Film Festival. Soon to be plastered on programmes, blue-tacked in shop windows, and rigged like a godhead across the concrete palais. And while we should be wary of judging an event by its cover, the choice of image feels apt. The organisers picked it, they say, because it represents a poetic celebration of the quest for expression and freedom. Others may read it as a self-owning comment on the festival as a whole. That's the perennial question about Cannes. That millionaire's playground on the Côte d'Azur. Is it the bubble or the door? The sickness or the cure? A creative response to the woes of the world or a means of laundering its worst excesses? Nobody is certain. The jury's always out. Cannes thrives on frictions, contradictions. That's part of its appeal. But pull the elastic too hard, and sooner or later, it snaps. This year marks the festival's 75th edition, a birthday of sorts. It provides the perfect excuse to rewind through the event's past, celebrating its history as a home for provocation, a seedbed for the Nouvelle Vague, New Hollywood, the Buena Onda of Latin American cinema. But it's also a chance to reset the compass, to map out the future. Judged on face value, this year's lineup is terrific. There are new films from David Cronenberg, Claire Denis, George Miller, Kelly Reichardt. A shrewd balance of arthouse delicacies with tasty cinematic junk food. Top Gun Maverick, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis biopic... It's almost enough to distract from the troubles piling up all around. Industry upheaval. The pandemic. Ukraine. It is a good year already for the British producer Mike Goodridge, who has two films in the main competition. Triangle of Sadness is the new comedy from Ruben Erstland, who won the 2017 Palme d'Or for his art world satire The Square. Tchaikovsky's Wife is a period drama by the dissident Russian director Kirill Serebrenikov. Cannes has banned official Russian delegations this year, but individual artists, most of whom are at odds with the Putin regime anyway, are always welcome. The producer thinks that's fair enough. Serebrenikov, he explains, has just spent several years under house arrest. He's the last person who should be receiving a cultural boycott. Goodridge first came to Cannes back in 1991. He has been a journalist, a sales agent and a festival director himself. So he's come at the event from pretty much every angle and largely made peace with its manifest contradictions. Cannes, he argues, is still the world's most exciting film festival. Moreover, it may be the last great champion of cinema itself doggedly wedded to the old theatrical business model and forcing made-for-TV Netflix content to screen in Venice instead. Cannes is dedicated to protecting the sacred art of cinema, he says. And the Cannes Palais, as well as being a place of discovery, is cinema's ultimate cathedral. It changes your life. It changes the way you see the world. 
Inevitably, there's a downside too. The worst thing about Cannes, I suppose, is the rarefied nature of it. It is elitist. It is snobby. And yes, it is slow to change. The selection process isn't flawless. There needs to be more fresh blood just to mix it up. You do get sick of seeing the same old faces in the main competition. We're back to those can frictions again. For every action, a reaction. For every high, a crushing low. I've been coming to the festival for years and still can't pin it down. It is at once radical and hidebound, serious and silly, horribly hierarchical and airily democratic. Or to put it another way, Cannes is the Walt Whitman of film festivals. It contains multitudes. It contradicts itself. Outside the Palais, the impenetrable art house puzzle is accorded the same red carpet treatment as the A-list Hollywood blockbuster. Inside, the highbrow main competition is offset by a lowbrow film market, selling Asian erotic thrillers with garbled English blurbs. In a small apartment, she was almost like an old goddess to him. At night, on the harbour, the oligarch yachts double as film party venues. The revellers raise their champagne flutes en masse to toast the latest social realist creed occur from Bucharest or Timbuktu. Undeniably, it used to be more riotous, more of an obvious circus. I miss the human traffic that used to surge along the croissette before the security was tightened. The upstart student filmmakers bellowing into loud hailers. The newspaper vendor shouting, Liberation! on the steps. In recent years, Cannes has become safety conscious, almost cloistered. But does that make it more of a bubble than before? The filmmaker Mark Cousins vehemently disagrees. I have no time for this argument, he says. Firstly, Cousins explains, Cannes' natural affinity has always been for the innovator, the underdog, the sort of artists who would normally be left outside in the cold. Secondly, crucially, it remains a physical festival, a moment in the mosh pit, a vital connection with the offline world. What used to be called life, he says. Goodridge compares Cannes to a cathedral. Cousins, for his part, reaches for nautical similes. The festival, he tells me, is like a sea wall against erosion, or a lighthouse in the storm, battered but sentinel, directing its beam into the globe's four corners. That's a bold claim to make about an event that once staged a stunt involving Jerry Seinfeld in a bee costume on a zip wire, but he may be right. Because if there is a comedy can and a celebrity can, it follows that there might be a core principles can. Something to cling to when everything else blows away. Also, it's comforting to think of can as the lighthouse, honest and unyielding. Better that than seeing it as the storm itself. When people speak of Cannes' radical heyday, they invariably cite the insurrectionist fireworks of May 1968, 
when Goddard and Truffaut stormed the main hall and brought the event to a juddering halt. But Cannes' political roots go much deeper than that. This is the 75th festival, although by rights it should be older. It was explicitly conceived as a carnival of resistance, a riposte to the fascist event in Venice, which made Josef Goebbels its guest of honour and awarded the Mussolini Cup to a Leni Riefenstahl picture. The inaugural Cannes Festival was due to get underway on the 1st of September 1939. When Hitler's tanks rolled into Poland, the festival was cancelled a few hours in. I sometimes think Cannes' champions could make more of this genesis. It's like a superhero origin tale. A call to arms, a rising up. Politics is in Cannes' DNA. The French writer Agnès Poirier argues that its history is fundamental. More than any other festival, it has never been afraid to take a stance on the world, she says. Cannes was built in a spirit of inclusion, tolerance and empathy with other cultures. That's why it likes provocative artists who rattle our cages. Hitchcock, Gaspar Noé, Lars von Trier... It's why it loves dissident artists who shed a light on injustice. Sergei Loznitsa's film Donbass surrounded the alarm of a burgeoning crisis in eastern Ukraine. Andrei Zviaginsev's Loveless warned of creeping moral rot among the Moscow middle class. Cannes plays both sides, but it engages with the world. The photo calls and fashion disasters ensure that the festival is noticed. But those stage-managed frivolities sell its produce far and wide. Well, it's interesting that you would say it's frivolous, says Poirier. That's probably a British perspective. In France, Cannes has never been seen as frivolous. For us, it's very serious. It's our political class. It's our university of geopolitics. It's where we come for knowledge of the parts of the world we've never visited. For 12 days this month, the Cannes faithful will gather outside the Palais. They'll kick their heels beneath the giant image of Truman Burbank climbing against the painted sky, forever hunting for his exit route. Once through the gates, those guests have free run of the programme. The only limit is time. They may see a masterpiece. They may see a turkey. They may be whisked off to Sao Paulo, Harare or Muscat. They may witness something that changes the way they see the world. Sure, Cannes is a bubble. But the movies, those are doors. That was Clash of the Cannes by Zan Brooks. Read by Jason Doan. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Jason Doan and Erin Shanaher and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by Ian Chambers. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers this week were Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. 
Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.